will keep fighting to bring peace to humans and robots. This is Mega Bluster. I'm Stefan, and this is part 15 of our thorough examination of the Mega Man franchise and the finale of our first season. We've come a long way, and so it's time to take stock of what we've learned. It's a gloomy, rainy day in wherever it is I am. And that gives me calls to pause and reflect. I played 14 games for Season 1 of Mega Bluster, and I did so with the goal of answering two questions. What is the essence of Mega Man? And why did people stop caring about Mega Man? I don't think I'm ready to answer those questions, but I'm further along the path than I was 14 games ago, and I am ready to share some thoughts. Now, to be clear from the start, and I do want to be clear lest someone think this is one elaborate troll, I adore Mega Man. Now, it wasn't always this way. I was always aware of the character. I actually can't think of a time when I didn't know what Mega Man was. But his games were never around when I was a child. I came to games in general quite early in life. Uh, I was born in 1986, and my family acquired a Nintendo Entertainment System sometime in 1987, uh, before I was a year old. The game that pushed my dad to make that purchase wasn't Mega Man, though. It was Metroid. My dad's affection for games waned with time, but my maternal grandmother was obsessed with them. To this day, three years after her death, she remains the single greatest Legend of Zelda player I've ever encountered. But neither my dad nor my grandmother ever had Mega Man games in their homes. I knew Mega Man from seeing the games on the rental shelf at the local food lion. Yes, you used to rent video games from grocery stores, or at least you did if you lived in West Virginia. And I knew Mega Man, or at least the green, frog-voiced version of him, from watching Nintendo's seminal propaganda series Captain and the Game Master like any good video game-obsessed child of the late 1980s. But I didn't actually play any of the Mega Man games games when they came out. In the NES's heyday, Mario games were my obsession. I'd branch out every once in a while, but it took time to really figure out what I liked and what I didn't. It wasn't until the Super Nintendo, when I was introduced to games like Chrono Trigger, Donkey Kong Country, and Mega Man X, that I figured out what I really liked. Now, I'm not going to talk about Mega Man X today. We'll get to that very shortly as we move into Season 2. I bring it up, though, to make the point that the games that I played for the first season of Mega Bluster are not games that I am seeing through a nostalgic lens. They are games that I played for the first time as an adult. And while they aren't all good, they have all reinforced my previous statement. I adore Mega Man. 
But if you ask me today, I couldn't tell you definitively what Mega Man even is. Which brings us to question one. What is the essence of Mega Man? Well, of the games we've played, let's start by looking at the ones that tell us less about Mega Man. Let's look at the games that aren't Mega Man. Steven Rosner's DOS duology, Mega Man and Mega Man 3, The Robots Are Revolting, are not Mega Man games. But why? We'll set aside the off-model character sprite. We'll see that there's plenty of visual variation that can happen with the player character without losing the essence of Mega Man as we move forward in this series. These games aren't Mega Man for two reasons. How they control, and how they sound. Much of Mega Man's appeal is based on movement. These are games that reward precise and disciplined control. We've talked about this before, and we will talk about it again. They are also games that indisputably sound great. The music of Mega Man is one of its strongest elements, and I think I may have understated its importance in previous episodes. Despite several composers working across these games, there is a consistent musical philosophy to Mega Man. The compositions provide the games with momentum, they are well suited to and themed around the individual stages and bosses, and they're just plain fun to listen to. Mega Man music isn't just arbitrary background noise. And a lot of music on the NES really was. By contrast, Mega Man's music is essential, and it's completely missing in Rosner's games. With loose controls and no music, Rosner's Mega Man can't be Mega Man. Let's swing the other way, though. Akira Kitamura's Kokoron isn't Mega Man either. It controls more like Mega Man than do Rosner's games. But it's lacking the character of Kitamura's original works. And I mean that specifically, it, it doesn't have characters in it. Over the course of the proper series so far, Mega Man has actually built up a pretty stable cast. There's Mega Man himself, his creator, Dr. Light, his nemesis, Dr. Wily, his sister, Roll, his brother, Proto Man, his dog, Rush, his bird, Beat, his friends, Dr. Cossack and Kalinka, and some recurring henchmen enemies like Metals. Now that's not to say a game can't embody the essence of Mega Man without these specific characters, but it does show that there is a non-mechanical, non-game-feely element to the series. In the same way that there are many characters with Superman's power set who are not Superman, so too are there many Mega Man-like games that are not actually Mega Man. Not merely as a matter of intellectual property, but also as a reflection of the tone and character, and essence of the game. Even if we can't say yet exactly what that essence is. At this point, we can only compare it to pornography. You know it when you see it. 
Now, Kokoron pursued a different idea of world building, a different sense of character. And that is what separates it from Mega Man. It feels different, even if it plays somewhat similarly. Now, of course, Rockboard proves that characters alone aren't enough to make a Mega Man game either. And that's important because it reinforces the idea that even when recognizable, a Mega Man game has to have more to it than just the character. Mega Man isn't Mario. His presence alone does not a game make. So that's what we've learned from the games that aren't Mega Man games. How about the ones that are? Well, so far that's Mega Man's 1 through 6 on the NES, and Mega Man Dr. Wily's Revenge through Mega Man 4 on the Game Boy. Ten in total. These are undisputably Mega Man games, but what makes them so? Well, let's dispense with a couple of things right away. The fact that Mega Man's artwork portrays him as blue is unimportant. The Blue Bomber moniker is meaningless and misapplied. The Game Boy games dispense with color, but lose nothing of the essence of the series. And frankly, let's do away with any notion of Mega Man as a series that cares at all about technical sophistication, forward progress in the medium of game development, or pushing the boundaries of game design. Of those 10 games, only three could be considered truly innovative and boundary-pushing. The first three. Once the series had been established, Capcom was content to let it ride. And I'm not saying that as a criticism. More than anything, I'm saying it simply to draw a contrast between Mega Man and some of its contemporaries which were focused on pushing that envelope. Final Fantasy is the illustrative counterexample. Each game in the Final Fantasy series, even to this day, has been to some degree an exercise in pushing up against what was possible within the current state of game development. Final Fantasy IV pushed against storytelling boundaries. Final Fantasy V pushed against mechanical boundaries. Final Fantasy VI pushed against structural boundaries with its bifurcated world. Final Fantasies VII, VIII, Nine, and so on, were technical showcases, demonstrating what was now possible in video game graphics. And being on the bleeding edge of what console gaming made possible remains part of the essence of Final Fantasy. People come to those games with the expectation of being wowed. And that is not what Mega Man is about. A Mega Man game does not have to be technically impressive to be a Mega Man game. That's important to call out because it gives us another thing to remove from our pile of potential essence definers. So what's left then? At this stage, I'd point to a few things. There is the character himself, of course. Mega Man is a very visually charismatic mascot. And all of the games that are real Mega Man games give the player control of him or, going forward, some comparable variant of him. 
The games do have a strong general aesthetic, which is primarily rooted in retro anime and manga-inspired technological tropes and themes. The Astro Boy influence is very real and very obvious here, and that aesthetic template is part of the series' appeal, at least so far. And then there's the music and the sound design, which we've already mentioned. It is not cute music, it is pulsing and electronic without being cold or distant. And it gives the game a rhythm, unlike many of its contemporaries. There's the structure, the non-linear start that narrows to a linear finish, innovative in its day. There's the moment-to-moment tactical gameplay, with each stage being broken up into discrete challenges that require considered approaches. There's the power-stealing mechanic. There's the shooting. All of these could be contributors to the essence of Mega Man, and any one of them could be the one that, when removed, causes the whole edifice to crumble. Which ones are essential and which ones aren't? Well, we'll explore that more in Season 2, which is at least as much about removing these elements as it is adding new ones. So let's turn to our second question then. Why did people stop caring about Mega Man? Now again, I think I should provide a little context for this question because Mega Man isn't gone. He's still on merchandise. People still like the character. It's not that people really don't care about him or his games anymore. But you have to consider this in relative terms. In 1989, Mega Man was one of the premier video game franchises, one of the most obvious and visible mascot characters of the 8-bit era. And whatever you think of him today, he is simply not an A-lister anymore. Fans cheer when he shows up in Super Smash Bros., but no one is surprised that he doesn't headline console-defining games. If we get a legacy collection release of some old titles, we consider it a treat, but no one is sitting back expecting Capcom to announce its incredible, big-budget Mega Man revival powered by the RE engine anytime soon. So what happened? Well, even more so than the question about essence, I don't think we're ready to answer this yet. And the reason is because we aren't yet at the point in our story where the series really started to take its downturn in popular appeal. However, we can make some guesses based on the stagnation we've observed so far. Some might think that Capcom wasn't giving the Mega Man series enough attention or budget. I've mentioned in previous episodes my belief that Capcom's attention was simply elsewhere during the early days of 16-bit home consoles. But on reflection, I don't think that's entirely correct. Capcom was distracted, and they were budget-conscious, sure, but Capcom also released a lot of Mega Man games, and you don't really see evidence of cut corners or cheapness in the main ones. They are small, yes, but they are also polished and sturdy. And let's not forget the 10, or 13 if you count Rosner's efforts and Rockboard, 10 games 
Capcom released under the Mega Man banner that we've looked at so far in this series came out in a span of six years. That's more than two per year on average if we include the Rosner games and Rockboard. Now in that same window, Nintendo released five proper Mario games, three Zeldas, and two Metroids. Capcom was cranking these out, and even when distracted, they made keeping the series going a priority. So I don't think we can say that Capcom didn't care about Mega Man. I do think that upon considering this point more deeply, though, a hypothesis emerges that we will examine in future episodes. And that is... What actually killed Mega Man as a premier gaming mascot was the fact that Capcom released too many games with him. Capcom made a decision, wittingly or unwittingly, to spread what money was allocated to the franchise across many individual games. Now, what if the budgets allocated to Mega Man's 4, 5, 6, Rockboard, and the Game Boy games had instead been given to one or two big titles instead of eight small ones? And why didn't Capcom do that? I don't have an answer today, but it's this line of questioning that I want to pursue going forward, because I think the deeper we dig here, the more likely we are to find treasure. So now let's talk about what happens going forward. We've reached the end of season one of Mega Cluster. And although we don't have answers to our questions, we have learned some things that will help us narrow our focus. So what happens now? Well, a few things. First, I will be moving to a monthly release schedule for the next three months. This is going to allow me to get ahead on the games I need to play and the scripts I need to write for season two. These monthly episodes will not focus on Mega Man games, but rather on three games that are significant to our understanding of what Mega Man is and will be during Season 2. Those three games are Little Samson, Sonic the Hedgehog 2, and Breath of Fire. Finally, I'll be back this winter with Season 2 of Mega Bluster. Season 2 will again cover about 14 to 15 games. I might include a tangent here or there if it's relevant to telling the main story we're telling. The focus of Season 1 was really about a franchise establishing a pattern. Season 2 will be about that franchise trying to break that pattern, but realizing as it goes just how hard that is to do. It's going to feature not just some important new characters and elements in the games, but some important new figures behind the scenes as well. And I think that when we get to the end of it, we'll be significantly closer to answering the two questions that motivate this project. I will leave you today with this. An excerpt from the Mega Man X Developer Diary, translated and available online at schmoplations.com.
Make a rock man for the Super Famicom. There I was, just enjoying another lazy spring afternoon when the order came down. Rockman on the Super Famicom? You want me to handle that? Ah, what was I going to do? You see, in the Capcom Consumer Division, the Rockman series was the most dreaded of the three Instant Death series, along with Ghosts and Goblins and any Disney game. If you were assigned to it, you could kiss your freedom goodbye. And now it had come to me. You can do it, I tried to tell myself, and if it goes well, you'll reap all the accolades. Besides, the company pays for meals when you work overtime. Ugh, I only had 3,000 yen left in my bank account this month, and 10 more days to go till payday. I'm not gonna lie, it was a struggle. I can only use 300 yen a day for food. The dangerous aroma of a free meal was leading me on. Okay, I've got it now. Being selected to make the next Rockman game. There's no greater honor. I'm fired up now. Let's do this. If only I had been a bit more frugal with my money. Or if I had disliked money more from the start. What horrors. What hell I could have avoided. Keiji Inafune. Thanks for listening to part 15 of Mega Bluster, our ongoing interrogation of the Mega Man franchise. Music from this episode was sourced from ocremix.org in compliance with that site's content policy. You can find credits and links to the original postings in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or the podcatcher of your choice. If you didn't, well, thanks for listening anyway. Big of you to stick around this long. If you have any feedback you'd like to provide, or if I missed something, you can reach out to clay at guilelessgamer.com. This and other social links are also in the show notes. How long will I keep on fighting? How long will my pain last? Maybe only the X-Buster on my hand knows for sure.